0: Hello, two cities. Good evening to you. Happy belated Fourth of July. It is really good to be with you. Um, so we're going to be continuing on with our series through Peter. Um, when Peter writes, as Pastor Kyle is going through First Peter, when when the Apostle Peter writes First and Second Peter, he is an older, seasoned pastor. What I want to do is go back to a defining moment in Peter's leadership that I believe was catalytic and forever formative for his earthly ministry. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 21. We're going to be working through verses 1 through 19. So I want to define a couple of things, um, lay a, a few tracks for us to run on together and give us some context while you're turning there or typing to that on your phone or on your tablet. And here's where we're going to go. We're going to go in this direction. We're going to focus on how the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus Christ, how the gospel restores our lives. How the gospel restores our lives. Now the word restore is, um, is a word we all can relate to. Because in our world, in our city, in our culture, we restore all kinds of things, right? So my family, we lived in Ardmore for about four years in a 1925 house full of character that was restored almost back to its original condition. My son, who, my youngest, who's 19, he restored a 1975 Nova, It's crazy. Before he sold it. We restore planes and trains and all kinds of things. And as you age and mature, you even will encounter people who are trying to defy gravity by restoring parts and pieces of their bodies. We restore all kinds of things. Restoration is also a part of the gospel narrative. And I'm going to talk about this. All of us, like Peter have also, and this is what unites us here. Now, if you're a small child, you probably haven't had a defining moment yet, or at least one that you know of, but all of us have had defining moments. And we can look back on those moments that, that forever marked us and, and shaped us and maybe even changed the trajectory of our life that were very catalytic. And here's the reality of a defining moment, that it can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. So for me in my mid-20s, it's for many of us when we became a Christian, a follower of Christ, I was in my my 20s pursuing the lie of the American dream before God radically intervened into my life and radically saved me, radically changed the trajectory of my life, and I'm, I'm preaching the gospel here with you tonight. That's not what I signed up for. But it was a defining moment for me. For, for some of the, uh, for you, it was when you got accepted into uh, a college or accepted into a program or you got hired. That was a defining moment, like you got the dream job. For some of you, it's when you didn't get accepted or when you got fired from a job. That became a, a defining moment for you. For some of you, it's when you got married. That forever changed the trajectory of your life. That was a defining moment. And for some of you, maybe it's when your marriage fell apart and it ended in divorce. And that was a defining moment for you. It could be the birth of a child. It could be the death of someone you love very, very deeply. It could be a friendship that you gained that was catalytic in your life. Or it could be the loss of a friendship. As you get older, or maybe even younger, it's, it's when you received a good report. And you're like, yes, yes. And that was a defining moment that changed your life and it caused you to live differently. Or it could be you got a bad report. And that was a defining moment. He said, well, with what I have left, I'm going to live a different life for the glory of God. And on and on and on it goes. And you can fill in the blank with your defining moment. And the more I studied this passage, the more I sat in this passage, the more I realized this that this has potential to be really, really, really good news for us. And here's why. The longer I've been a Christian, the more Christians I meet who are living very self-defeated and self-deflated lives. They're like, this is not what I signed up for. The the Christian life is is boring. And, And I meet Christians many times who are living in the bad news. The good news has become old news. There's many Christians that feel fatigued and they feel sidelined because of maybe something that has happened to them or something that they did. And I mean, a lot of Christians who are living in the death of Jesus but rarely encounter life in the resurrection power of Jesus on a daily basis. And so for many of us, How we entered into the Christian faith kind of set us on on motion. And so I'm I'm going to kind of say this as nicely as I can. Some of us came into the Christian faith with a very weak and anemic understanding of the gospel. And I want to show you how the gospel of restoration fits into this. And here's what I mean by that. For many of us, the gospel was simply this. God created everything and it was really good. Creation. Creation. Then something really bad happened with Adam and Eve and they sinned against God. They did some bad things. Somehow those bad things got transferred to me and now I need Jesus, redemption, to forgive me for all the bad things that I've done so that I can go to heaven when I die. And it's a gospel that has a very low view of God and a very high view of ourself. It's a very low view of the holiness of God and a very low view as a result of that, of our actual depravity and how bad we are. That many of us and many people I talk to think that we're actually good people that occasionally do some bad things. I need Jesus to forgive me for those. But scripture teaches the reverse, that we're actually really jacked up. And we're really bad people that by God's grace, occasionally we do some good things. That changes your theology, the holiness and sinfulness and how that fleshes out. But did you know that the gospel actually doesn't start with creation? The gospel narrative, so let me zoom out. The gospel narrative actually starts with God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God He's the alpha, the omega, the author, and the finisher of our faith. Then creation comes out of God's good pleasure. He creates the earth. Then he creates us in his image. Why? To know him, to love him, and to represent him. At the fall, Adam and Eve decide to return the favor and make God into our image. And they fall away from the holy and happy state that God had created. And that seed of sin nature is birthed in every human being that has ever been born and ever will be born. So God, creation, fall, redemption. The Old Testament points to a Messiah, Jesus, who will come and once and for all reconcile us back to God the Father through his sinless life, the life we can't live, no matter how hard we try, through his death in our place, like what Jesus gets is what I deserved, and then through his bodily resurrection after three days to conquer sin and death. It means that God's righteous wrath against sin falls on Jesus, and as I have conversations throughout the years and with people who have been, you know, outside of the church and are not Christians and we have deep gospel conversations, I always say it this way when we get to that point. Here's what it means in regard to Jesus. It means that Jesus either pays for your sin in this life through repentance and faith in him or if you reject him, you pay for your sin in the life to come. That's the reality. That's the the weight of heaven and hell and the beauty of the gospel. How does Jesus accomplish this for us? Through a bloody, rugged cross. Why does he do it? And we're going to see this in the passage. Because he loves us. It's amazing. Because he loves us. Then the gospel narrative goes to restoration. Restoration. That when God saves us, he saves all of us. When he forgives our sins, he forgives all of our sins. And as the gospel begins to transform our very heart and mind and the way we live, it begins to restore all areas of our life in the shattered image of ourself that sin has wreaked havoc on. And then finally, the gospel narrative. God Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, finally is consummation. And the older I get, the more I can't wait to meet Jesus. One day, he will make all things new. Amen? So it's a picture of Jesus who saves us from the penalty of our sin. Jesus who is saving us every day from the power of sin. As I desire more of Jesus and less of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin when we are with him. That's a different gospel narrative than what some of us have maybe heard or what we bought into. And I love love John's writing because when John writes this gospel account, basically two decades have passed since Peter was martyred. Peter was martyred in Rome in roughly AD 67. And John could look back on Peter's life and see that he actually lived up, while imperfectly he lived up to his encouragement and his instruction that we read about in First and 2 Peter. Peter demonstrated by the way he lived his life, the reality of the resurrection. So I like to read the passage, follow along in your Bible or on the screen or on your phone or on your tablet. And then I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in to this amazing, amazing passage. John 21 verse 1. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you stir our affections for you? Would you show us that you are our greatest prize and our greatest treasure? Lord, as your people, I pray that we would humbly yet confidently submit to the authority of your word and what you say is true for us and about us and about you. Father, do the work of transformation in us as we lay our lives before you in this time together. For your glory and for the good of your people in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Let's talk about a younger Peter. A couple of observations. Um, Peter was a guy who liked to go first. I live in the country, and out in the country, you call those kind of individuals, y'all watch this kind of guys, right? You ever known some of those guys? It usually doesn't go well for them, right? He was, um, at, at times, instead of uh, ready, fire, aim, Peter was a fire, ready, aim kind of guy. He would, uh, at times, his, his passion would outrun and outpace his wisdom. And there were times when Peter would simply out punt his coverage and be kind of left in the backfield going, that's not going to be good. So here's a couple of things, a few things rather, that that the apostle Peter was first at. He was the first disciple to be called by Jesus. He was the first disciple to make a confession about who Jesus was. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. uh, Peter was also the first disciple to rebuke Jesus. And he said, no, 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 Jesus, no cross for you. That's not how it's going to end for you. Peter is also the first guy to respond when approached by a riotous mob to arrest Jesus. He was the first guy to pull out basically a glorified fishing knife and chop off a guy's ear. That was Peter. Peter was also, as he gets into a a foot race with, with John, he was the first disciple to actually enter into the empty tomb after Jesus had been crucified. And here's what I want you to hear. By the time that we get to this text in John chapter 21, there's a lot of shame in Peter's life. There's a lot of shame in his life. Where does the shame come from? Well, it comes from an event that had happened in Peter's life where Peter denies the Son of God. All four gospel accounts tell this story of how Peter denies Jesus three times. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells Peter before this is going to happen that Peter... You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Now, Peter had just said to Jesus, hey, I'm all in. I will go to death and war. Whatever you want, Jesus, I am with you. So here's how it plays out. Jesus is arrested. Peter follows from a distance. He's kind of warming warming himself by a fire. And he's asked the question, hey, do, do you know that? Do you know Jesus? Do you know that guy? Peter says, I don't know that guy. The second time he's asked, Are you sure you don't know the guy that was arrested? Peter's like, Look, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know that person. Third time, Are you sure? Because you talk like him, you dress like him, and you walk like him. And Peter's like, Man, are you crazy? I don't know him. And at that moment, the rooster crows. Now, in Luke's account of this, if you read it closely, it says that at that moment, Jesus actually locks eyes with Peter. It says that Peter was cut to the core. He grieved for what he had just done, a divine stare. Now, here's an imperfect earthly example of that. You ever gotten in trouble as a kid and your mama gave you the stink eye? Man, she looked at you, didn't say a word, and she stared. She cut a hole right through your soul, and you just wanted to die. Like, please say something. It would be less painful than the stare. What was Peter's great shame? He denied Jesus. And it gets real personal, real quick, for all of us as his followers. Because there are moments and seasons and maybe even day in and day out where we deny Jesus to a watching world by not speaking up, by not standing up, by not showing up for the sake of our faith. And it's the whole big bucket of what you call the sin of omission. It's the things that we know are true and right because God's word tells me it's true and right, and I don't do them. I don't act on them. It's not the acts I commit, it's the acts that I don't commit that I should because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. Some of us, and I'm convinced all over the nation and the world as the church gathered to worship the risen Savior today. Churches are filled with Peters living in their failure and shame and regret and condemnation. And here's how this plays out. So I'm going to talk to just the Christians. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you get to watch the Christians sweat for just a minute. I'm one of them, right? So I'm going to throw myself under the bus and you can drive over us. So here's how it plays out. I'm going to use some Christian language, okay? And I'm going to, I want to apologize because Christians have created kind of a subculture of language called Christianese. And we use these words with one another and all of our lost friends and people that don't know Jesus are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I'm going to use some of these words, but I'm going to define them because I don't want to have a a Napoleon Dynamite moment. Favorite movie? Did I just lose respect from you guys? (laughs) You know when Napoleon he asked the farmer, uh, do chickens have large talons? And what does the farmer say? I don't understand a word you just said. And that's many times non-Christians' view of us. Like, what are they talking about? So here's how this plays out for some of us. Some of you were saved. That means you became a Christian. You repented of sin, placed faith in Jesus. You were born again spiritually. Some of you were saved at a younger age or maybe as a teenager or maybe as a young adult. And maybe it happened in some kind of venue like uh, a mission trip or a Christian camp or um, some big Christian worship event where Chris Tomlin and... um, David Crowder, those are big Christian music artists. You've probably never heard of them if you don't listen to Christian music. Serenaded you. Or maybe a big revival, right? Here's a revival for me. Some guy who's really angry yells at me for three days and makes me feel guilty. That was my experience with revivals. All of that happens and you come out of that and you're like, I'm giving my life to the Lord. I'm ready to charge hell with a water pistol. And you have like this transfiguration experience. That means mountaintop experience. Or we use this language. We re, I rededicated my life to the Lord. And here's what that means. It means I don't think my Christianity stuck the first time because I'm not really seeing any evidence of that. So I'm going to rededicate. This time's different. Well, then I blow that and then I rededicate again. I just keep going down the line, like rededicating, rededicating, rededicating your life to the Lord. And here's what we say in some of these moments. We say things like, I'm never going to sin again. <laughs> I'm never going to sin again. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to leave everything and I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to share the gospel with every single person that I encounter every single day. And we say, I'll never do that again. This time is going to be different. And then the theology of Britney Spears kicks in. Oops, I did it again. I blew it. I went back on my word. I I vowed not to do that. And I did it. And here's where we go. Listen to the cycle, it's vicious. I used to be about the things of God. But now there's this wall of of shame and regret and embarrassment and like self condemnation. And and, and it's there. If you're hearing you're not a Christian, this is what some of you wrongly think. This is what I wrongly thought as not, when I was not a Christian. Some of you wrongly think, man, God could never forgive me. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what's been done to me. Man, I am damaged, beyond repair, totaled. Like, no one could love me. I'm in too deep. God could never use me. And here's what I want you to hear. Christ overcame what overwhelms us. Christ overcame what overwhelms us. And for both groups, Christian and non-Christian, do you think your sin And your shame and your failure before a holy God. Namely, what I've done or what has been done to me is too big for the cross of Christ? No, absolutely not. Jesus died for our failure and our shame. And it has been put to death. And we can no longer say... I can't forgive myself because at the cross we lose the right to not forgive ourselves because Jesus has already forgiven us. No one, please hear me, no one is beyond hope. No one is beyond God's reach. When I was younger, serving as a pastor, we planted several churches. That was a big thing that we did. We would bring men in and we would put them into a residency and we would send them out. And we had to develop them. And they were young and they said stupid things at times. And we would give them the pulpit and that's how are they gonna learn unless they preach. And we had one young church planter with us who's done so good, so proud. And the church has just exploded in, in growth and done great things. And he was, he was preaching a sermon. And here's what he said in the sermon. He said, There are just some people that there's no hope for. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so the elders had to lovingly come around him and shake him and grab him and say, don't ever say that again. Don't ever say that again. It's not true. God saved you, didn't he? Your life is a testimony to how God can save anyone. It was an incredible moment, incredible teaching moment. One of my favorite uh, authors and pastor, a guy by the name of Paul Tripp, read anything by him, he's really good. He says this, he, referring to Jesus, he can defeat what you can't. And he intends these troubles to not be enemies that finish you, but tools of grace that transform you. Isn't that good? Here's what I want you to hear we don't fight for our victory. That's religion. We fight from our victory of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished for us. That's the gospel always have to default to that. So listen to the progression of this passage. What does Peter do to manage his shame? It tells us in verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing. The other disciples say, we'll go with you. And they go out and they fish all night. That's largely when they fished and they catch nothing. It's very frustrating my, my son and I just went to the beach not long ago. We went fishing. I caught two stingrays. You can't eat those things. It was a terrible fishing trip. Like we didn't get anything. Like it's very frustrating. So the disciples catch nothing. Do you think that's a coincidence? No. There's not a, there's not a particle of dust floating around in here right now that won't land without God knowing about it. Nothing happens outside of his providential control. And here's what happens. Jesus shows up on the seashore while they're fishing about 100 yards off. And he says, hey, guys, throw your net on the right side. To which, like, later I would have been like, seriously, Jesus, you're a carpenter. (laughs) What do you know about fishing? But they throw the net over and they catch a boatload of fish, 153 large fish. Now, as I thought about this passage, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how we, in our moments of failure, when we let God down, when we sin and we start to carry the shame associated with that, isn't it interesting how we run back to the very things that God saved us from, delivered us out of, and called us out of? Do you remember Peter's calling? Hey, Peter, leave this. Follow me. You're not going to fish for fish. You're going to become a fisher of men. I love the truth embedded in Proverbs 26, verse 11. It says, like a dog that returns to its vomit. Don't need to explain that to you. It's like a fool who repeats his folly. You see, in our failure and in our sin, we love to run to things that are safe and comfortable and familiar. Why do we do that? Because it gives us temporary relief. It helps us to feel better about ourselves. And we say, this is the little game that we play with ourselves, I'll never ever do that again I'll never click that again I'll never watch that again I'll never engage that relationship again I'll never say that again I'll not do that then you do it and then you say to yourself what is wrong with me and it's just a cycle that we get ourselves in and so what we do is we find a safe place to go manage our failure and our sin and we hide now, where does hiding come from? Running and hiding. Well, this is part of the, the Genesis 3 fall story, right? When Adam and Eve sin against God, Adam and Eve prior to sinning are naked. That's a happy place. Like that's, that's a picture of the Garden of Eden before sin comes in. When they rebel against God, what happens? They now realize they're naked and they are What? Ashamed. What do they do? What do you do when you're ashamed of something? You hide. You put a mask on. You cover yourself. And so Adam covers himself with a fig leaf. He runs and he hides in the bushes. God shows up on the scene and he says, hey, Adam, where are you? Now, is it because God had a momentary lapse of sovereignty Was was it a divine game of hide and seek? Okay, I'm going to cease to be God for a second so Adam can hide and make him feel happy and better about himself. No, no. I love the passage because I believe what Jesus is doing with Peter and what God does with Adam is simply this. God wants us to acknowledge that we are hiding. Here I am, God. Here I am. Did you know because Scripture teaches us that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-seeing, ever-present? So who do we think we're fooling? Oh, God won't see me. Um, he won't see me. He, he won't know these things about me. And here's how it plays out. Some of us have gotten really good at at managing shame and failure and sin and hiding that by doing one of two things. We either perform or we pretend. So we default to performance. If I just stay busy enough and live a distracted life, I won't have to deal with the issues of my heart. And you know where one of the best hiding places is? It's a little secret the church. Do you know that Christians can hide indefinitely in the church? And and we can hide behind really good biblical things like serve one, attend one. No, not me. I serve two and attend two. (laughs) DNA groups, not one. I'm in five. I'm a part of four community groups. I'm involved in every Bible study on this side of the Yadkin River in Forsyth County. (laughs) I'm in all of it, man. And we hide. Or we go the other direction and we put a fig leaf on, we put a mask on, and we pretend. And we get really good at answering questions when other Christians ask us, Hey, how's your, how are you doing? How is your life? Oh man, praise the Lord! He is so good. I'm so good. Life couldn't be any better. And on the inside, you're absolutely dying. And we pretend. And we go to one of two places with this, and here's, here's the incredible thing about the story of restoration with Peter. Jesus doesn't let us go. Jesus doesn't let us go. In the midst of our shame and our failure of Peter, Jesus shows up on the shore and he says, "Hey guys, let's have breakfast together." Translation: Let's eat sushi together. Let's have some fish. I love this. I love this. He doesn't let us go. Scripture teaches that, listen, I don't lose anyone. No one snatches my people out of my hand. No one is lost. And we see the picture from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament of God pursuing his prodigal children. He doesn't let us go. Do you remember when Pastor Kyle preached through Jonah? God says to Jonah, hey, go preach the gospel to a city that's going to hate you and and not like what you have to say. Nope, I'm going to go the opposite direction. Did God say, oh, okay, I'll get another Jonah. Jonah Jr., you're up to bat now. No, he pursues him, right? How about this? If you're a parent, right? If you're a parent, if you had one of your children running as fast as they could toward a busy intersection, would you let them go? Ah. It'll be a great lesson for them. They'll be fine. Lesson learned. We have two more kids. If it doesn't work out, we're still good. No, you would grab your child even if it hurt in the moment. That is God's discipline and love for his children. And I believe that the message and the passage of restoration here is an incredible window In to see the love of our heavenly father for his wayward and rebellious children. And then Jesus does something amazing. This is amazing. He recreates a moment for Peter. And the moment that he recreates is two moments, the moment of his calling and the moment of his failure. And he uses two ordinary items. Here's the first one. When was the first time Peter and Jesus had an experience around fishing? Do you remember at the very front of the Gospels when Jesus calls Peter? He says, hey, put your nets down. Leave some of these relationships. Follow me. You're going to become a fisher of men. He shows back up and there's Jesus on the seashore. Hey, throw your net on the other side. What's the second? The second is a fire, but a very specific fire. It's a charcoal fire. It's only used two times in the Bible, both times in John's gospel. Do you know where the other time a charcoal fire is used? It's when Peter follows Jesus after he has been arrested from a distance, and he warms himself beside a charcoal fire. You see what Jesus is doing? He's recreating a moment for Peter. Notice also that when the disciples come off of the boat onto the shore, the fire already has fish on it. What does that mean? It means he doesn't need what you're bringing. He doesn't need what you're bringing, but he invites us anyway. It's amazing. Religion is what we bring that gives me good standing with God and keeps me in good standing with God. The gospel of grace says you don't bring anything to me but your sin and I will give you forgiveness and life abundant and life eternal. It's the moment right here of restoration that begins to open up where Jesus is saying, I love you. I'm here for you. My love never fails. But Peter, we got to talk about this. We got to talk about this. And what he does with Peter is he calls him by a fuller expression of his name, Simon, son of John. Now, there's four times that Jesus uses this fuller name with Peter. And every time the moment that followed that was a big, heavy teaching moment. So it's like when you were younger and you got in trouble. You see a pattern in my life. I was a terrible kid, right? Right. And your mom, usually it's a mom, your mom would look at you and say, Charles Williams Plitt Jr. That's my full name. And you're like, oh man, could you please just call me Will? Because that would mean the punishment is not gonna be as severe. Jesus calls him this fuller expression of his name. And then he asks him three questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Why is Jesus doing that? Is he being mean? Is he having I told you so moment? Is he, is he trying to taunt him? No. Because Peter denies the Messiah three times. Jesus gives Peter the opportunity three times to affirm his love for him. Now, biblical scholars on the first question kind of argue back and forth of what does more than these mean? Some say that more than these is the other disciples. Do you love me more than the other disciples? Earthly relationships. Other scholars say, no, it's it's material possessions. It's your income. It's the fishing boat, the fishing net, all of those kind of things. Personally, I believe Jesus referred to both of them. Do you love me more than all of these? Why do I believe that? Because what I believe Jesus is doing is he's trying to get to the heart of the matter. Do you know that the gospel is about an inside-out transformation, not an outside-in religion? He's trying to get to this with Peter. Peter, what do you treasure most? Do you remember the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in history? It's Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says in that, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And what Jesus is doing is he's pulling Peter back to himself and back to the mission. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Otherwise, Peter is left feeling like a loser and a failure every day of his life. As Peter walks around, oh, that's He's the guy that denied Jesus three times. I've always kind of historically felt bad about Thomas, who's known as Doubting Thomas. Like he got a bad rap. Like, oh, I'm not going to believe it unless I stick my fingers in the wounds and see Jesus. And he's known historically as Doubting Thomas. And there's a great lesson in that for us that Peter's not known as Denying Peter, he's known as the Apostle Peter, Pastor Peter. And here's what I want you to hear. Jesus was saying to Peter is that the same relationship that we had at the beginning is still true today. The door is open, Peter. And some of you need to hear that. The door is open. How then did Jesus respond to Peter? And this is an area of my life I'm, I'm growing in because I like to go angry prophet. When something goes bad, angry prophet will comes out. How did Jesus respond to Peter? Did he yell at him like a grumpy old man who's hard of hearing? <laughs> did he stand on the seashore and berate him and belittle him and give hand gestures and fling angry words at Peter? No, he restores him gently rebukes him gently, and he makes breakfast for them, and he eats with his friends. That's, That's amazing to me. The passage, I believe, encapsulates something really, really important that Jesus said. When Jesus was pressed, they were trying to trick him up. Hey, out of all the laws, what's the most important? And Jesus says, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Be a lover of God, love your neighbor, love people, lover of God, lover of people. He's challenging Peter to give evidence of his belief in Christ through loving him and feeding his sheep, loving others. And by the time we read First and 2 Peter, Peter is doing exactly that. It's amazing. Jesus demonstrates with Peter that I love you, I pursue you, I want to eat with you as a friend would. I want to heal you. I want to restore you, and I want to set you free. And what he does in that moment of restoration is he heals the wound of Peter and says, follow me. How does Peter respond to Jesus? What does Peter do? Well, verse 7, John and Peter, John says, it's the Lord He acknowledges it's the Lord. And then John says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're mine. And I have a whole new life for you. Be a fisher of men. And I love the exchange on the boat because John and Peter would have been good friends. And John is, is, is saying, it's Jesus. It's Peter. It's the Lord. He's calling for you. The door is still open, Peter. What does Peter do? (laughs) Impetuous Peter jumps in the water, half naked, throwing his clothes on as he goes in the water, and he swims toward the Lord. Now, I have to believe because the boat was only 100 yards offshore that probably at some point the boat actually probably rode by Peter and go dude if you stayed in the boat you'd have gotten there quicker but whatever you're first to respond you go for it Peter responds by jumping in and swimming toward the Lord he responds rightly and I pray that this would be our response individually and corporately today lastly lastly God's love brings us to a task, a mission. And He tells us what the mission is. The same mission for Peter is the same mission for all Christians. He says, Give your life to shepherding my flock. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not an evacuation plan, it's an invasion plan. It's not become a Christian, sit on our laurels until Jesus returns or till we die, become his greatest fan on Facebook, like everything he posts, and do nothing with our faith. It's not an evacuation plan. We're not waiting around to die and doing nothing with our faith. It's an invasion plan. The gospel invades our life. It transforms our lives so that we can bring the good news to others around us. Now, when you back up to John chapter 10... Jesus is talking about, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the gatekeeper. The sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. They follow me. But in verse 16, he says something really powerful. He says, there are sheep that are not of this fold out there. Out there. Defenseless animals. Did you know that sheep, which are nature's victims basically, (laughs) are defenseless animals that will just walk right off of a cliff and follow the other one right off the cliff. They will die quickly without a shepherd. And Jesus is reminding Peter, and he's reminding us through his text, through the scriptures, that that's the world that we as Christians are called to. They don't know where they're going They've been blinded to the truth of the gospel. They are riddled, riddled with guilt and shame and regret and condemnation. And they are self-medicating their lives every single day to bury the pain. And you got to know, if you open your eyes, that our city, our nation, our world is hemorrhaging It's hemorrhaging. People are dying and living without the gospel. And Jesus is saying, I need my people to go out and bring the good news and shepherd the flock with the word of God. So in closing, I'll give you one more, one last fun fact about the apostle Peter. Do you know what Peter was also the first to do after Jesus ascended back into heaven? Because of the gospel of restoration, the apostle Peter was the first one of the disciples to take the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jews. John chapter 10, verse 16. Self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Jesus does not want us to sit in our sin in our shame, and in our failure. He does not want us to be defined and marked by that. He desires to restore us, to set us on a mission to bring the good news to those who have settled for bad news. Let's be a church that brings the good news to those around us. Let's pray. So I just want to just, just pause and give us a moment to just sit and to breathe the word of God in and, and just simply to respond to Jesus. Father, your word is timeless and it is Timely that you are speaking right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, what are you saying to each of us? What are you saying to us corporately? Your word says in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God, you're looking for a people that will love you fully. We don't have to find you. You will find us. And when you find us, you know exactly what to do. We don't have to bring anything. You bring it all. You have brought it all through the finished work of the cross. And just it's just the reality that many of us are living lives and it's not working. For some of us, our lives are a complete train wreck. And for some of us, we have compartmentalized our lives to be able to manage our our, our sin and our shame and our regret. And we have sidelined ourselves from your mission and have grown content to just hide in our own comfort and in our own safety so, Lord, I just pray that we might, as a people right now, just confess to you where we have denied you, with our thoughts, our words, our actions, the motivations of our heart, Lord, that we would give you right now the shame, the regret, the embarrassment that we're carrying. What is that? Father, your word says that there, if anyone is in Christ, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the wound that you need the great physician Jesus to heal in your life? Lord, would you heal that? Lord, would we just acknowledge that, as John said, it is the Lord. That we would just acknowledge you in our hiding. Because you're already there with us. Where are the places of hiding in your life that need to be confessed? Jesus, you don't let us go. We can never doubt your great love for us because all we have to do is look at the cross. You overcame what overwhelms us. You want to restore all areas of our life. What are the areas of your life that you want Jesus to restore? Lord, you desire us to respond to you. You want us to follow you. I pray that you would lift our eyes to see the harvest of our neighborhoods, our workplaces, to see the people that are hemorrhaging. all around us, Lord, that we would feed the sheep, that we would bring hope to hopelessness. The message of hope is you, Jesus. Christ in you, in me is the hope of glory. I pray, Lord, for the the individual that's here who has not made a decision to follow you. Lord, you have chased them and pursued them all the way into this very seat tonight. Lord, I pray that you would give that individual a holy courage to repent, to turn away from their sin and place their faith and trust and hope in what Christ has accomplished for them. You are inviting them right now into an abundant and eternal relationship with you. Father, be glorified. May this message, the words that come off of these pages, may it transform the way we live our lives for your glory, for our good, so that the gospel may go forth in our city and to the ends of the earth. And we pray in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.